all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB Public Media app. Radio. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, where we discuss issues involving your children as they're growing up. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. Today, we have Dr. Sarah Connerly on with us. She is a pediatric neurologist at UMMC, and she is here today to talk and answer any of your neurology questions. So neurologists are the ones who we think of that deal with seizures and headaches and um, trying to think anything else you can think of. All things that are the brain, spinal cord, and muscles. There you so go. we do, yeah, we do all of that. You can send an email to kids at mpbonline.org. So good morning, Dr. Connerly. Thanks for coming on with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so tell us a little bit about, you kind of mentioned brain, spinal cord, muscles is kind of what you all do. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about what all y'all have available at the Children's Hospital with how, um, you know, watching for seizures and um, some of the different things that y'all have available for our kids? Yeah, sure. So seizures, that would probably be a large chunk of what we do. I would say at least 50%. Um, so part of when, you know, we're looking at a child to see, do they have seizures? We do what's called an EEG. So that is looking at the electrical activity of the brain. And so we have um, those tests available. We also have what we would call an overnight or a video EEG where we're spending more time looking at those brain waves, trying to figure out what's going on. Um, for some of our kids, they're going to need a picture of their brain, like an MRI um, of their brain or the spinal cord. Um, and then, you know, kind of moving, not related to the brain maybe, but like the spinal cord or the muscles, we can do EMG nerve conduction studies, that type stuff we do on some of our neurologically needing kids. So, so all kinds of things available over there at the children's hospital. Um, so let's start with just talking about. Uh, seizures, because I feel like that's, like you said, that's mm-hmm. probably 50% of what y'all do. Yeah. Um, and it is something that I feel like a lot of people don't know a ton about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so let's talk a little bit, one, about what is exactly happening. Because if you've ever seen anybody have a seizure, it's scary. Yeah. Um, and you just want to, like, make them stop. Mm-hmm. But you can't. You can't. You, we tell <laughs> parents, you cannot make it stop. Right. And so it, it's really terrifying as a parent. So um, let's, or even if you're, who, no matter yeah. who it is, whenever yeah. you said, I can still remember the first time I saw anybody have a seizure. I was at basketball camp. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in, like, I don't think, I think junior high or something. And we went to Delta State for basketball camp. And we were literally walking from the cafeteria back to the gym. Mm-hmm. And a girl just 
fell out in the street. And thankfully, her friends knew what to do. Mm-hmm. But as like a little seventh grader, I just saw this girl in the street having a seizure. It was terrifying. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, if you see that and um, kind of explain what is happening with sure. that. And then maybe let's talk a little bit about like what you can do if you see somebody having a seizure. Mm-hmm. Because you may be on an airplane and sure. somebody falls out with a seizure. So, like, what can you do? Yeah. So a seizure, you know, so what's happening when you see someone having a seizure, it's electrical activity in the brain has changed. So it means that, um, you know, your your brain should be kind of trucking along doing, quote, normal, you know, electricity. But then suddenly it kind of becomes this chaos. So this all this crazy electricity happening. And so then that is what causes the shaking or jerking all over, you know, in seizures that look like that. But they can look like just staring, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think people commonly, when they think in their mind, what does a seizure look like? They imagine what you saw. of someone, Yeah, someone mm-hmm. fell and then they, you know, shook and jerk and, and eyes rolled back, all that. Um, but seizures can look like, you know, just staring. It could look like eyes getting stuck in one direction. It could look like stiffening just on one side of the body. Or it could just be that person is really confused and they're not kind of acting the way that they normally would. So um, that's a good point, because yeah. especially in like little babies. Oh, yeah. They're not usually the ones that do like the full shaking. Right. Kind of thing. That's usually more kind of eye, weird eye movements. Yeah, and exactly. Things like that. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Young babies, just because their their neurologic system is so immature, it hasn't developed yet, they don't have the real capabilities, neurologically speaking, of having a full, what we would describe as a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. So that's the shaking and jerking all over. So yeah, baby seizure can look really subtle. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if you ever see someone having a seizure, whether it be on the airplane, at the Kroger, or <laughs> in your living room, you know, so... The first thing to remember is that, you know, you you really just need to protect that person, you know, so protect them from getting hurt. So we would say if they are, let's say, sitting at the dinner table or on the couch to put them on a surface where they couldn't fall and hurt themselves, roll them onto their side, the left side, if you remember, and that just has to do with kind of your stomach, um, and then just support them. You could cradle their head, but don't hold them down. You will not be able to stop it by just, you know, holding their arms or legs down and do not put anything in the mouth. Mm-hmm. You cannot swallow your tongue. <laughs> it is firmly rooted <laughs> to the back of your throat. Um, and they can break off a spoon, a finger, anything that you put in the mouth. The jaw is very strong. So don't put anything in there, please. So, yeah. um, and then, you know, call 911. You know, get help if you if this is not someone who um, has had seizures before, which would mean maybe you've got some rescue medicine at home. If this is a different a situation where you don't have any rescue medicine available, um, call 911 so you can get help your way. Yeah. Um, and most seizures, for the most part, I feel like are pretty short. They are. Even yeah. in people who have true seizure disorders, yep. mm-hmm. for the most part, they're not going to last more than a couple of minutes. Right. A couple of minutes feels like it 10, feels, 15 minutes uh-huh. when you're like in the middle forever. of it. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, the brain is wired really to stop seizing by five minutes. And often seizures are going to, on average, stop within two to three minutes. So you're exactly right. Most seizures are going to stop on their own. Um, the 
ones, and even when we talk about rescue medicine, we would advise parents or caregivers that we don't give that medication until it's been five minutes, you know. So it feels like an eternity if you're mm-hmm. watching your child or, um, you know, someone you love have a seizure. Uh, it, and I'm sure it does, too, even if it's a stranger at the Kroger. But mm-hmm. especially when it's your own child, it's probably one of the most terrifying things you can watch happen mm-hmm. because there's a, there's a loss of control, mm-hmm. you know, that you feel, of course. So. Yeah. Um, But yeah. And, you know, if it's a first time seizure, um, we would, you know, recommend getting evaluated, you know, so whether that be if your pediatrician can get you in that day or if we're not responding like we should, um, seeing somebody in the emergency room just to make sure that this seizure wasn't triggered by something serious going on. Yeah. So. Let's talk about febrile seizures right. because I feel like, and that's a fever seizure, febrile fever. Um, I feel like that's one that we see a lot in kids, mm-hmm. and that doesn't always mean you're going to have seizures for the rest of your life. Right. Um, but it, it's still scary, mm-hmm. and a lot of times you do have more than one. Not always, but a lot right. of people do end up having more than one. And so let's talk a little bit about that. And do you always have to go be evaluated for those two? So sure. if you could kind of explain some of yeah. that to us. That's a good point. So febrile seizures, that would be um, – it, it's a certain age that we need to be to kind of call it that. So we would say six months to six years, but – for the most part, a five-year-old shouldn't be having a, f- a febrile seizure for the very first time. Mm-hmm. It tends to be most common age is a year and a half to two to when someone might have their first one. Um, but it is going to be, you know, the fever shooting up really fast. It doesn't mean you have to have a 105 fever. You could still just have a 101 fever. It's just that it shot up really fast. Um, and so in those kids, they're having a seizure, uh, usually generalized tonic-clonic seizures, so shaking, jerking all over. Um, so it's going to be that. And then when they, it's over, they touch them and they realize, oh my goodness, they're burning up. They have fever. Um, and in that situation, we would more say if it's just one, it's stopped by itself and they're otherwise kind of coming back around, then, you know, we need to figure out why you have fever, but you certainly could do that with your pediatrician. Um, if we ever have more than one febrile seizure in a 24 hour period, that's a situation of, or if it lasts longer than that five minutes, then we need to be seen in the emergency room. Um, and then the risk of recurrence, if you have one febrile seizure, your risk of having a second one is about 50-50, kind of depending on which study you look at. But definitely when you have a second one, it's more, you know, statistically speaking, you have a higher chance to have a third one. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to. Yeah. And I think that's a common misconception, too, about the, you were mentioning, it's the rise in the temperature and how Mm -hmm. quickly it rises. Um, Because a lot of people will be like, oh, her temp is 103. I'm worried she's going to have a seizure. Right, yeah. Um, So it's not, you know, once they get there to those high temperatures, Mm -hmm. I mean, unless it gets crazy high, like above 105, where the body starts shutting down, per se. But usually just like a 102, 103, once they're there, they're typically not going to seize at that point. Obviously, you want to bring their fever down to make them more comfortable. um, But they're probably not going to seize at that point. Right. Most of the time when people, I feel like, have a febrile seizure, the parents don't know they have a fever Mm -hmm. until after the seizure's over. Yeah. Um, So I feel like that's just kind of like a misconception, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, people hear, they see the high fever and they're like, oh, I don't want them to have a seizure. Right, right. But at that point, they're probably already. Yeah, the risk is over. The risk yeah. is over. Yep. So, 
Um, so before the break, we talked a little bit about what was happening when you had a seizure. So um, if you missed that, we basically said that the electrical activity in the brain just kind of goes a little haywire. Yep. Um, and then you, your body really doesn't have a lot of control over what is happening. The brain is just firing. Um, typically only lasts for a couple of minutes. Usually mm-hmm. shouldn't last more than five minutes. Um, but definitely, if it's your first seizure, we recommend going to be evaluated, mm-hmm. either in the ER or by your pediatrician or physician. Um, and, that, you know, we're talking about kids here, too, but yeah. especially in adults as well. I'll throw that caveat in there. Um, a first-time first seizure in an adult most definitely needs to be evaluated and probably in the ER. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, there's just for, you know, I know we have a lot of adult listeners, that, obviously adult listeners out there. <laughs> and since I do take care of adults as well, I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, so and then we talked about febrile seizures or fever seizures, which are um, seizures that happen as the temperature rises very quickly and causes your child to have a fever. Um, and those are a little bit different. And they don't always mean that you're going to have fe- uh, seizures for the rest of your life. Actually, I don't know what, 70, yeah. 80, yeah, maybe I even mean, more 90% don't have seizures correct. for the rest of their life. Yeah. So the, you know, if you look at children that have febrile seizures, the risk, the, let me rephrase, the increased risk they have over the general population. So that would mean a child who never had a febrile seizure. The only, the increased risk for seizures without fever only goes up by one to 2%. Okay. So it's very minimal. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So way even more than I yeah, said. Yeah. So, yeah, so very unlikely that you will have seizures into adulthood. Um, but let's talk about people who actually do have seizures, mm-hmm. you know, throughout childhood and sometimes even into adulthood. Um, what can you define? Epilepsy is kind of the seizure disorder term that we right. use. So can you kind of define what that is for everybody? Yeah. So the definition of epilepsy would be having at least two unprovoked seizures. So that means you had, um, you know, two seizures without fever or without being whacked in the head, you know, or something else that maybe is triggering that seizure. Um, a lot of people ask me, you know, when I'm seeing them for seizures and, you know, they've had a couple seizures, you know, without fever, they have an abnormal EEG, that's that abnormal electricity, you know, when we're looking at the brain. Um, and I'll say that, well, we have a seizure disorder, we're starting seizure medication, and they'll ask, is this epilepsy? And it's the same thing, tomato, tomato, seizure disorder and epilepsy. When we use that term seizure disorder, it, it basically is meaning the same thing, but um, saying epilepsy does not necessarily imply that it, this child will continue to have seizures as an adult. Some children do outgrow seizures, um, and that's even true if that label of epilepsy is given. But you have to have at least two unprovoked seizures, or you've had an unprovoked seizure, and we have significant evidence, I guess maybe I'll phrase it that way, that you're going to have another one, like right. that EEG being abnormal. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, say your child has had two seizures Mm -hmm. um, and you're now seeing the neurologist. When do you start medication? And if your child has to be put on a medicine for seizures, will they always be on a medicine for seizures? Yeah. So we kind of would tell everyone that everybody gets one seizure, you know. So if you've had one seizure without fever, 
um, and you're otherwise okay, um, we kind of leave it alone. We probably would get an EEG with that first seizure if it was without fever, just to make sure that it's normal. And if that electricity is normal, then we would just leave it alone, not start seizure medication. If you have a second seizure, though, again, then we've met that diagnostic criteria for epilepsy. So once we've had two seizures that are not provoked, if they were within a short enough time frame, let's, meaning you had one seizure, then five years later you had another seizure. Maybe that doesn't count. But if you've had two seizures, at that point we would start talking about seizure medication. The other place where we might would would be if we've had one seizure and then again we got that EEG and we have a lot of what we say seizure potentials on there, so we have a lot of abnormal electricity, that tells me if I don't start seizure medication, this patient's going to have another seizure and so we'd like to prevent that. We take seizures in two-year periods of time. So we start the clock when we start seizure medication. We start that clock from your last seizure. And so we treat for two years. And at the end of that two-year period, we would repeat that EEG and see, is it normal now? And if it is, typically we gradually reduce your medication until you can come off of it. So. Yeah. And uh, ni- I mean, not nice, I guess, but it, it is kind of convenient, I mm-hmm. guess would be a word to use, is in pediatrics, all of our dosing is weight-based. Right. And in pediatrics, our patients are constantly growing. They are. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times as our kids grow, they kind of outgrow their dose. Mm-hmm. And so over time, um, you can kind of see how they're going to do. Right. You know, mm-hmm. which is great if they do wonderful, if they do well and don't have any more seizures. Mm-hmm. But then sometimes we'll have patients that have a seizure and then you look and you're like, oh, well, they've outgrown their dose. So yep. we need to make those adjustments too. Yep. So, um, so if you're one that has, if your kid or grandchild has a lot of frequent seizures, um, then it may be worthwhile to make sure that you're you know, keeping a check on their weight and mm-hmm. talking to their doctor about, you know, adjusting their medicine. So so yeah. it's kind of nice in a way and mm-hmm. convenient, but mm-hmm. then it also can be very detrimental to some of our kids who do have yeah. frequent seizures. Yeah. So. It, it definitely is the, um, and I'm sure I guess you'll get into that with adults too, you know, who, but yes, children by nature will be growing. Yeah. And so um, sometimes we will adjust that dose for weight, especially if they've had a really large, you know, mm-hmm. growth spurt. We might go ahead and adjust it because, you know, especially maybe let's say you've only been on it for six months and you have a big growth spurt. We might would go ahead and adjust that a little bit um, just because we know we still have a year and a half left, yeah. you know, on it. But, yeah, often they kind of self-wean a little bit yeah. as they naturally grow, especially the young kids. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, so before we move into headaches, just really quick, we, we talked about how we, we recheck every two years to mm-hmm. see if they could potentially come off their medicines. Mm-hmm. Would you say majority of people do come off their medicines or is it kind of 50-50 or? I would probably say, you know, 50-50, you know, and, and there's a lot of things that go into that. Like how old were you when you started it? Do we have other risk factors for seizures? Meaning like, were you born premature? Do other family members have seizures? Those two things might increase the likelihood that you're not going to be able to come off your seizure medication. Um, But in the otherwise healthy child that doesn't have a strong family history of seizures, I would say at least 50 percent, you know, and kind of depends on the type of seizure, too. It might be more. Yeah. So and this one's a little kind of off topic, but I I mean, off it, it relates to seizures, but I guess a little bit different, but driving oh yeah yeah you know because i feel like that's one thing especially teenagers Mm -hmm. you know 
it's hard, especially being med peds. I take care of a lot of teenagers, <clears throat> and they, when they get diagnosed with illnesses, and especially something more chronic, it they they go through you know mm-hmm. a lot of emotions. So yep. it's already emotional being a teenager, but it when you get diagnosed with something like seizures or diabetes or or something to that nature, and something that they're going to have to live with, it can be very hard. Yeah. Um. And you know, one of the most exciting things when you become a teenager is getting your driver's license, mm-hmm. and so sometimes that can be hard. So I guess if there's anybody out there listening <clears throat> who has kids who have seizures, um. And they may be coming up on that age. What would you like? Still can drive you once can. your seizures get under control. Correct. Um, so I guess that's just something to kind of give a little bit of hope out yeah. there for people because you know mm-hmm. it is hard for our teenagers when mm-hmm. they get diagnosed with these sorts of things. So mm-hmm. to take away even just the the little common happy things that they get to do, but yeah. that's not always the case. We yeah. have such good medicines now. We do, and I think it it also. I mean, it, it's hard for the the teenager or the child, you know, to adjust to things. But, you know, it's also hard for the parent to Mm -hmm. adjust for things, too, or adjust to the reality that they're faced with now with their child having seizures. It's scary. I often get asked the question of, you know, probably more often when the child is really young, like six, seven, eight years old, like, will he be able to drive? Like, Mom, we're a long time away from that, but they're still worried about what will my child's future look like. Yeah, because you just want your kid to have a normal yeah, childhood. Yeah. And so. Yeah. And so it varies state to state, you know, as far as the, the, the legal answer. But in Mississippi, you have to be six months seizure free to drive. Some states, it does go up to a year. Um, but in Mississippi, it is six months. Um, so, you know, as long as you, if your seizures are under good control, then absolutely we can still have a, you know, quote, normal um, teenage life, adult life, you know, in that respect. Yeah. So, so I think that's, you know, reassuring. I yeah. just kind of wanted to throw that out there because, mm-hmm. you know, you don't. You don't ever want to take away those kind of things if you don't yeah. have to. And fortunately, we don't have to do that much yeah. anymore. And and most of our kids with seizures, you don't even know. You right. know, I mean, unless it's a very severe. Uh-huh. Um, and a lot of times those have underlying genetic problems right. and other issues as mm-hmm. well. But majority of our kids would just a seizure disorder. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you would never even know. Right. You really wouldn't unless, you know, you see their you know, medicine cabinet yeah. or um, or ask the mom about it. You yeah. you know, they are oftentimes very healthy children. Otherwise, right. get to play sports. Yep. They get to play in the band. They mm-hmm. are in regular classes. They get to drive, to swim, to do yeah. all the things. Yep. So, um, so it's just great. Yep. Last week we had uh, Dr. Harrington on, oh, and, yeah. and she was talking to us about all the, the cool things that they're doing with the, the hemonc. And mm-hmm. it's kind of the same thing, you know, like we have made such advances um, mm-hmm. in medicine for our children now. And it's just mm-hmm. it's just great to be able to provide that for them. Yeah, so. it absolutely is. Uh, this is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We are talking today with Dr. Sarah Connerly, who is a pediatric neurologist at the Children's Hospital. And she is here to answer answer any of your questions you can always send us an email as well to kids at mpbonline.org um, so we have been talking a lot about seizures we've talked about fever seizures we've talked about just regular seizures and when we treat 
Um, and just kind of the long long outlook uh, for kids and that it's actually great. Mm-hmm. Uh, 50-50 may not actually have seizures into adulthood, but even if you do, we have wonderful medicines and you can live a totally normal life. Um, own your seizure medicines. So now let's talk a little bit about headaches because I feel like headaches are super common. Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> and if you haven't had a headache and you're listening out there, consider yourself blessed. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so headaches happen a lot mm-hmm. for a lot of people. Um, I don't know the statistics, but I would assume it's probably at some point by the time you're 12, every kid has had at least one headache, mm-hmm. um, whether or not it's consistent or not, uh, you know, persistent or not, I guess would be the the term mm-hmm. if it continues into, yeah. you know, but at some point, all kids, I feel like have had a headache. Yeah. All yeah. adults have had a headache. Yes. So tell us a little bit about, I guess migraines probably mm-hmm. are one of the more common ones that mm-hmm. we think about. Yeah. But actually, probably tension headaches are a little bit more common. They're, yeah, they would be more common, I think, um, which is that is what I would describe as just, quote, a regular headache. Yeah. You know, that's the headache that everybody knows. My head hurts. I wish it didn't. But I can still function. I can still go to school. I can go to work. It's just annoying mm-hmm. versus a migraine that's a severe headache, it's throbbing, maybe you feel nauseous, maybe you want the lights out. Um, and so it just draws more attention, you know, um, like you feel worse and then your child also feels worse and looks worse. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of um, parents will get a little bit more, I guess, worried, you know, when they have a severe headache. Um, just because, I mean, everybody's first knee jerk is, do they have a brain tumor? Right. And the answer is, prob- is probably not, you know. <laughs> Um, because statistics, if you look at migraines specifically, at least a quarter of children have had a migraine by the time they, you know, have finished childhood, basically. So, and it actually may be higher than that. Those are people that have actually sought treatment. So, yeah. um, so yeah, migraines, um, still, you know, a quarter are going to have them, um, more common in females once you get through the puberty time frame, and at least... 25% of teenage girls are going to have migraines. They run in families just super, super strong. And so that's kind of the most common reason, I would say, to have migraines. Being female and having a mama who has them too. Yeah. So, so if uh, describe the difference because I feel yeah. like um, – I don't know. I feel like everybody just kind of says whenever they have a bad headache, oh, I'm having a migraine. Yeah. But it's kind of different pain. It's different. And so you mentioned kind of the throbbing, but Mm -hmm. there's a lot of other stuff that can go with Mm -hmm. migraines possibly Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to just like a tension headache, which is just kind of – it is can be throbbing too. It can be. Mm -hmm. um, But it's usually more kind of generalized or at the back of the head Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to a migraine, which Mm -hmm. is a little bit different. So Mm -hmm. if you you wouldn't mind kind of explaining explaining the difference yeah. in pain mm-hmm. and some of like the associated symptoms that you can have with migraines. Yeah, so migraines, the pain tends to be um, more in the front of the head. Um, for adults, it often is on one side of the head. Um, and, and then in teenagers, it may be on one side of the head. Um, younger kids, they may just kind of point to the front of their head just because it's also hard for them to kind of localize where does that pain hurt. Um, but it does, but to have uh, diagnostic criteria for migraines, it does have to either be throbbing or pulsatile as opposed to just kind of that dull squeezing type headache. Um, it also, the pain gets worse whenever you do something. So if you are um, doing something exertional, so let's say you are, 
trying to do basketball practice or t-ball like we can't do that when we have a migraine that makes it just excruciating they often the kids like i said will be nauseous they may vomit they um, may not want to be around loud noises. They may not want the lights on. And for a young kid, they're not going to tell you the lights are hurting my eyes. They may not want to watch TV, you know, or they may want to go to their room, not be around their brothers or sisters. Um, so that that's kind of how that can look like. Um, and then they, they just kind of look ill, you know. Um, with migraines, you can also have some other neurologic stuff happening. Like you can have blurred vision, you can be seeing spots in your vision, you could lose your vision, you can have numbness, weakness of an arm and leg, kind of other stuff can happen when you have a migraine and that is not going to happen when you have a, a regular tension headache. Yeah. So, And those, the vision changes with a yeah. migraine or pretty terrifying speaking (laughs) from personal experience yes yes. um yeah and that you know of course if you're having something new a new neurologic change and and you are losing all vision please seek emergency care you know but but if this is what always happens with your migraines then yeah that's just part of your migraine yeah so um but yeah a a tension headache can be severe and you can be hurting really bad but Mm -hmm. it's not that pulsatile a lot of times they'll they'll look kind of pale mm-hmm. they just parents will just say he didn't look himself um, it just, it looks different yeah you know so let's talk about what you can do if your child has mm-hmm. a headache mm-hmm. well I guess first before we do that when should a parent be worried and when should they seek care because kids complain uh-huh all the time yeah <laughs> <laughs> and say so when can you decide when is something concerning versus when does my kid just not want to go to school mm-hmm. or would rather just be able to you know sit inside and watch tv instead of yeah. go outside so when it when should a parent be concerned and then we can kind of move into like what can they do at home for mm-hmm. the headaches you know i think everybody knows their kid you know and so i think if you recognize that he he or she really does seem like they do not feel well you know they are laying around they're not acting like their usual self then um then then that may be more migraine as opposed to tension headache most kids with a migraine are not going to want to for example you know if they're staying home from school sit on the couch and play video games or watch tv because again they have that what's called photophobia the lights are bothering their eyes and making the headache worse so you know could it be more school avoidant behavior you know maybe if we're otherwise kind of seeming like ourselves and still wanting to do the the fun things mm-hmm. you know at home um we get concerned whenever um it's kind of a i would say a new thing that is getting worse so let's say you know, your child has never complained of headaches before, and suddenly they're complaining of a lot of headaches, and it's only getting worse and worse, meaning how often it happens or how severe they are, um, especially if there's not a family history of migraines. That would raise the concern a little bit more than a, a situation where everybody in the family's got migraines. Well, little Johnny probably does too. Um, so that would raise a flag. The other would be perhaps age. So a younger child can get migraines, but we do kind of look at that a little bit differently if they are, say, three years old and complaining of a headache every single day compared to maybe a more typical migraine age patient of 10 to 12. If your kid's waking up in the middle of the night, 2 a.m., complaining of a just severe headache, that's also concerning, you know, and that would definitely warrant um, seeing your, your physician to get that kind of evaluated what's going on and maybe referral over to us yeah and again back to uh 
the adult Pneuma adult hat yeah. for a little bit. We do recommend any adult with a new onset headaches. You know, yeah. so y- you can get headaches like. Uh, in August when it was mm-hmm. a million degrees outside. Yep. Uh, I had, I swear I had a headache like almost every day for that like two week time span mm-hmm. where it didn't get below three, mm-hmm. de- you know, a hundred degrees outside. And that's because, you know, it's hot outside. I wasn't probably drinking enough water and yep. I was kind of chronically dehydrated yep. and literally every single day I had a headache. Mm-hmm. Um, but with rest and water, it, it got better. Right. And I had circumstances around it. So, yeah. you know, but if you are a new adult, I mean, I would say 30 and older. Yeah. Um, and you get headaches and you've never really had headaches before and you're mm-hmm. having headaches, you need to go get checked out and, mm-hmm. um, you know, just get your doctor to take a look at you and make sure they don't need to get any pictures or do any tests or anything like that. Most of the time, we don't need all of the tests. That's we right. don't, most of the time, we don't need lab work. We don't need pictures of your head. Um, we can help you with your headaches just based off of talking to you. Um, but there are certain things that may raise our eyebrows a little bit and make us want to get a picture of your brain. So you want to make sure that you go talk to your doctor if you're, I would say, over 30 and older and starting to have new headaches. Mm-hmm. So just wanted to make sure we threw that out there. And um, we have a caller, Rebecca. Good morning, Rebecca. What's going on? Good morning to you. How are y'all? Doing good. Thanks good. for calling. Thank you. Um, no, I just wanted to make a comment about how I'm so glad that that uh, taking care of headaches has advanced so much because I started having to take Dilantin when I was in third grade and had to take it for two years. And, and that's not, yeah, I don't know whether, I don't think that that would be a common thing to Def- take for no, headaches. No, it definitely wouldn't be. Yeah. yeah. Not in this day but and age. Was, yeah. Yeah, but that was what that was the only thing that they had back then to mm-hmm. take, and it's like you know it was. Um, but I'm just so glad you know that there's Imitrex and all these other medicines now mm-hmm. that you know can help with that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know there are a lot of. Not a lot, I guess, but there are some seizure medicines mm-hmm. that we do. Dilantin right. is an old seizure medicine, mm-hmm. um, if you're not familiar mm-hmm. with that term. But it's an old seizure medicine that has potential for a lot of side effects. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we don't use it that much anymore. There are still certain situations where we do. But there are a lot of overlap between mm-hmm. seizure medicines and headache medicines. So, yeah. But just Dilantin, we don't really use that much. No. But, man, there's so many new headache medicines out there yeah. that are miracle workers according to my patients so especially for adults unfortunately Mm -hmm. we can't quite use some of those for kids but for adults yeah it's a it's a great it's much better than it used to be for sure so well and i don't i mean and the thing about it was i you know i was i realized that that there was a lot of stress involved with this because Mm -hmm. i I took took those headaches and, and and i had all those things you talked about uh, photophobia and and I couldn't noises bothered me mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. But once I got they got it under control, they were better. But I didn't have that kind of headache again until I was in graduate school. Oh yeah, I mean it it, it was just which ooh, stress yeah. stress there for sure. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and that you know stress. We talk about you know what. What are the common triggers for headaches, all types, migraine or tension type? Stress is the number one trigger for sure. And closely followed by dehydration, you know, like we kind of mentioned too. But stress, gosh, yes, um, that'll that'll do it for most people. So, mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, thanks for calling, Rebecca. We appreciate it. 
Um, so speaking of stress, I haven't had headache, migraines since yeah. I was in college. Yeah, so stress. That's when I had my little bout of migraines for a couple of years, and then I got better. Um, and then pregnancy brought yeah. them out, mm-hmm. and actually had one during labor. Oh wow! Which was it was <laughs> terrifying because uh, I get the really bad vision changes mm-hmm. too, and that I could feel that coming on. But you know, obviously, your body's under a lot of stress, and you don't really know what's yep. what is normal yep. and what's not abnormal. And uh, so, yeah. So speaking of stress, that's what brought yep. my migraines back on. Thankfully, I have not had one since then. Yep. Yep. Um, but yeah, stress mm-hmm. can can tear the body up for sure, and headache yeah. bring on headaches is definitely one of the things. And we will go to John. He's got a question about where migraines come from. So what's going on, John? Hi, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I'm a retired science teacher, and I've always had an interest in the central nervous system and one of my favorite topics to teach my students. I always understood that the brain itself doesn't have pain receptors. Has that changed? Well, when we say you have a headache such as a migraine, I know that the the brain does... uh, identify the location of pain from receptors throughout the body. But when you're talking about a migraine itself, where is it arising from? Scalp or is it somewhere else? That always puzzled me. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a great question that short answer, we we don't have a solid answer for kind of why are migraines happening? Where, and there's not a specific location as to where it's coming from. You, you can have a migraine that's triggered by, um, let's say, scalp irritation or, um, you know, kind of that referred pain from the scalp. But you know, when we talk about where or how does this migraine cascade happen, it's kind of a neuronal um, depolarization and kind of some other things going on there. We used to think that migraines were a blood vessel problem as far as you were having Mm -hmm. constriction of the the blood vessels in the brain, and then they would dilate, and maybe some of that was causing um, the... um, the, the pain that people were feeling, especially since it was kind of pulsatile. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of been largely disproven. Um, but there's really not, you know, we, we don't have like a, like I said, a location in the brain that it's coming from. We know that the the specific chemical substance P is, you know, involved in the, the kind of pain pathway with, with migraines. Um, but yeah, we kind of, short answer, don't have an answer for that, you know, um, with, with migraines. So... Yeah. Well, listen, I'm uh, I'm not a um, neurologist, nor am I a researcher, but I do like working on puzzles. And sure. Basically, basically, I think that if we can't f- figure out uh, something that is that is being added to the brain, or something that is over over uh, level in the brain that causes that maybe it's the absence of something you've you've you have cleared up a lot from that and this is kind of causing me to think and and think and wonder because somehow the brain is interpreting something that's gone awry yeah circuitry and it's interpreting that as pain Mm -hmm. and that pain is in in the brain and at least it is being you can interpret that on an intellectual level as being located here or there, or maybe just generalized. I heard you mention earlier that you could have vision mm-hmm. uh, issues with mm-hmm. that, and maybe auditory issues, whatever. Mm-hmm. So it seems like there's some type of generalized circuit, circuit 
breakdown, something something that's causing that. I'm going to do some more reading into this and, and find out. Like I sure. said, I am not a researcher, but there are a lot of us out here that have ideas, and maybe researchers can take off uh, with those ideas. But thanks for taking yeah. my call. Thanks. Absolutely. Yeah, thank yeah. you, John. Yeah, that's the tricky thing about migraines, and mm-hmm. I think that's part of the reason why they've been harder to treat. Mm-hmm. Like our mm-hmm. other caller mentioned, um, is because we don't exactly know. Yeah everything about what's happening Mm -hmm. um it's and things like um seizures for example comparing seizures to migraines like in some ways it's easier to target you know treating seizures because you can see okay this is what's happening in the brain the electricity is changing right now it's becoming chaos and um and you can kind of get down more into you know, sometimes the uh, cellular or receptor level, you know, with seizures that um, is a little harder to do with migraines mm-hmm. for sure, just because um, there's not a measurable test. Like we can't do a test to show you're having a migraine right now. For seizures, I can definitely do a test to say what you're having right now is a seizure or is not a seizure. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. There's not, I feel like sometimes on an MRI, you can see a few changes that could be associated yeah. with a migraine, but really, there's mm-hmm. not much that's going to show you. Mm-mm. So, um, yeah. we kind of briefly mentioned um, some of the newer medicines that are out there for migraines. They haven't been approved. How far down it's, do they go? It's 18. 18. So, yeah. Um, and those are the new medicines that you've probably seen the commercials mm-hmm. for, with like Serena Williams. <laughs> and uh, I think she does Ubrel-V. Yeah. Um, I, there's Nurtec. Those are some of the shorter-acting yeah. ones. Um, but then there's also the shots like yeah. um, Emgality and mm-hmm. Amavig mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Yeah. Lipta, yeah, there's there's a, a lot of new treatments coming out for adults with migraines, um, and there probably will continue to be new treatments. There's even another um, infusion-type situation. But, you know, again, these are going to be adult-type things, so they're not really things my patients are going to be able um, to do right now. And that's just because of safety measures, but, you know, in some ways of we've not yet proven that it's safe for a child or, or a teenager to take. Um, but once they turn 18 um, and are seeing more adult neurology, it's something that could be considered. Yeah. So. And hopefully... I mean, I feel like with kids, it just takes time. It does take time, especially, you know, you know, if you look at migraine incidents before or after puberty. So before puberty, boys and girls are the same as far as how, you know, you're just as likely to have an eight year old boy as you are an eight year old girl, you know, in your practice for migraines. After puberty, though, because of the hormonal changes that are happening, girls are having a rise in estrogen. Boys are having a drop in estrogen and a rise in testosterone. Um, you're going to have more girls that have migraines at that point. And so the incidence in boys goes down with puberty, but it goes up for girls. And so some some females will have migraines for the first time at puberty or right. kind of peri-puberty. Um, but and boys largely are going to get better. And then with girls, though, and then young women and women, as some of those hormonal changes are leveling off during their teenage years, for a lot of people, migraines do get better. Um, and I would say that for me personally, and I know for you too, you yeah. know, kind of as we got into more of our young adult years into college, um, our migraines got better. Yeah. Yeah, thankfully. Thankfully. Because <laughs> they are not fun. Yeah. So. Um, well, hopefully this helped people listening out there. And thank you so much, Dr. Connerly, for coming on. Um, if there was something you, we missed or if you have a question, you can always send us an email as well to kids at mpbonline.org. 
Uh, This has been Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. It's a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from listeners like you. Today's show was engineered by Kevin Farrell. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod. Join us next Thursday at 11 for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.